Good morning. How's everybody doing? I asked uh, Emily to switch up the order of the song. She had an order and it was great, but I really wanted, I, need, I felt like I needed this amazing grace as I came uh, to share with you this, this topic this morning. I think uh, maybe this last week I've prayed and had people pray for me more than uh, any other sermon in a long time. In fact, last night my wife, she's sick, she's not here, she's coughing, struggling, and usually every evening before we go to bed or as we get into bed, one of us prays for the other, and uh, you know, I didn't pray for her, she prayed for me for, for today. I did pray for her as well, but, but we usually take turns. Who's in the most need? And so, uh, as I was thinking about this topic and often as I think about difficult things in the Scripture, uh, my mind goes to a verse uh, in the Bible. Whenever we read, whenever we study the Bible, it's important to remember Paul's words to Timothy. He writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, breathed out, inspired, uh, several translations say, inspired by God. Therefore, all Scripture is profitable. It's, it's relevant uh, to our lives. And today we come to a passage of Scripture as we go through the book of Romans that's particularly relevant in our culture. It's relevant because it touches on an issue that's increasingly prevalent in our society and in our lives. Uh, the issue of sexual immorality, including homosexuality. Our culture has and is redefining uh, right and wrong in this area. And the new morality isn't based on biblical principles, but on principles like, uh, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, then it's okay. Or whatever takes place between two consenting adults is their business. Or as long as you're in love... Everything is fair game. These cultural principles tend to focus on the physical, the right now aspects of sex, while ignoring the long-term emotional and spiritual damage uh, that sexual immorality produces. Therefore, things that were once labeled as sin, uh, even by culture, are now accepted, advocated, even celebrated. And so it's not easy for Christians to figure out uh, the biblical response to these cultural changes. Some too quickly go with the cultural flow and they read these changes into their Bible, while others so strongly resist the cultural flow that they go beyond what the Bible says. Now that might sound like the goal here is to find some middle ground uh, between the Bible and culture. But that's never the case. Our goal today, or any day, is not to compromise between what the Bible proclaims and what the current culture advocates. Our goal is people that affirm the Bible as the inspired Word of God is to diligently seek in His Word to understand what God says, what God teaches in all areas of life. So that we might follow His Word as we live in our culture. Or put simply, instead of allowing the culture to influence or even overrule what the Bible teaches, 
The Bible, God's Word, must overrule culture. When our culture comes in conflict with God's Word, God's Word has to win the day. However, we need to consider the whole counsel of the Lord. Seek not compromise, but biblical balance. And this morning, it's my goal that we find biblical balance in the area of sexual immorality, of human sexuality, that we maintain or develop biblical convictions about what sin is in this area, while growing in our biblical compassion for those who struggle in these areas of sexual sin. Now for us to develop biblical convictions and compassion, we have to begin by understanding our passage in the context it was given. I want us to see the context that leads to the sexual immorality that Paul writes about in Romans 1, 24-27. That's our passage for today. But we need to back up. We need to review what we've seen in Romans 1, 18-23, the preceding verses. We did this last week. If you were here with us last week, this, 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 the whole sermon last week of the foolish exchange, which we'll get to, we'll review, is uh, the context, is the backdrop for what we're going to be talking about today. So let me review again these seven steps leading, well, no, let me back up. Let me go first to Romans 1.18. The verse begins, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed, or is being revealed, we talked about that several weeks ago, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. Now, how is the wrath of God being revealed? Paul answers that question beginning in Romans 1.24. That's our passage for today. But first, he gives what I've called uh, seven steps leading to God's wrath. These steps are found in verses 18 to 23. I'm not going to read the verses. I'm just going to summarize these steps in the chronological order, how they happen more in time than how Paul records them. First, God reveals himself. Through his creation, God reveals his eternal power and his divine nature. Second, they see God's revelation. Uh, the word they in there, I just want us to understand, we're talking about they, we're talking about we, and, and, and the thing is, they, and, and as I go through this passage, sometimes I'll say we, sometimes I'll say they, and I think we can look at it as this, we are all prone to what Paul is going to talk about, but uh, we do not have to fall into what they fall into, what he describes here. So sometimes I'll say they, sometimes we, but they, we see God's revelation. It's really talking about humanity. They clearly see God's eternal power, His divine nature, and therefore they are without excuse. In fact, third, they know there is a God. They know in their hearts, based on seeing His revelation in creation, that there is an eternally powerful, divine God. However, fourth, they do not respond properly to God. God, the Creator, deserves all honor and all glory and all thanks. But that's not what they do. Instead, fifth, they suppress the truth about God. They don't want Him as their God. They reject Him by suppressing the truth about who He is. And they suffer the consequences. Sixth, they are corrupted. Let's read this part at the end of Romans chapter 1, verse 21. But they became futile in their thinking. This is following the suppression of the truth about who God is. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. 
And that leads to the seventh final step preceding God's wrath. Talked about it all last week. They make the foolish exchange. Romans 1, 22, 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They reject God. They reject the purpose for which they were created. Pop quiz. What's the purpose for which they, for which we were created? To glorify God. Really, we could say even to reflect God's glory created in His image and to bring glory to God. That's what they, that's what we were created for. And instead, they embrace, they worship images of their own making. Creating gods for themselves. Becoming their own gods, their own decision makers, carved images. And this results in the righteous wrath of God being poured out upon them, upon humanity. I want to remind us when we talked about this wrath of God, the way to escape the wrath of God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way to escape the wrath of God is to come to Christ. And then when, God, when God's wrath comes upon our world, God transforms that wrath in our lives. Remember we talked about that? The three things that God's wrath, how God's wrath is revealed in our world through death. And God transforms that in the life of a believer. Death leads to heaven. Suffering and futility. How God transforms our suffering in our life and it, and it develops character in us. We receive, we still die, we still suffer, but God does different things with those things in our lives. And the final one, and that's where we're going to be talking about today, the third thing, place where we see God's wrath is in unrestrained sin. God's going to give them up. We're going to talk about that. And instead of that, in our lives, God gives us the Holy Spirit that we can overcome this unrestrained sin. So, they make the foolish exchange, not reflecting God's Glory, God's wrath is revealed, it's poured out on humanity. This is important for us to see what's going on here. This is the context that we'll be looking at. Because of the foolish exchange, because we've rejected and replaced God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And how does God reveal His wrath? Three times. We talked about death and suffering and uh, 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 unrestrained sin. Well, this is the unrestrained sin part we have right here. Three times in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, we read this phrase. It's the same phrase three times. Verse 24, 26, 28. It says, God gave them up. God gave them up. We're going to look at the first two occurrences in in 24 and 26 today. Next Sunday, we'll look at the third in verse 28. In verse 24, Paul writes, Therefore, because it's reflecting back what we just talked about, uh, because of those seven steps, specifically the foolish exchange, therefore God gave them up. Now before we look at what God gave them up to, we have to understand what this phrase means. What does it mean that God gave them up? Some would say that it means that God kind of stepped back. That God became passive, in a sense. 
He simply removed his restraining hand. He was restraining sin in the world, and he just removes his restraining hand. He allows humanity to go where their futile thinking and darkened hearts lead. That's reasonable. This can be illustrated by thinking of God's restraining hand as an anchor, uh, holding a boat in place. So there's this boat, and it's in the middle of this raging river, and it's got this solid anchor, and it's held in place. But then when God's, we can think of God's hand as, as that anchor and he pulls it out and then that boat is, goes naturally, natural consequences, the boat will be dragged through the current of the river. But the language, God gave them up, along with the context that we just talked about, God's wrath suggests more than God's passive involvement. It, it suggests God's active involvement. He doesn't simply remove his hand He doesn't simply pull up the anchor and let the boat go, allowing the river to control the fate of the boat. And in this case, the boat is humanity, us. Rather, God is not only the anchor holding the boat in place, He's also in control of the river. He's in control of everything. In His wrath, God is guiding the boat, humanity, as we we go into our disastrous results. God is sovereign over all. He knows and He controls the fate of His creation. He's the potter. We're the clay. And therefore, the sexual sin that we'll see described in the following verses and the sin we see in our world today is not only sin that humans commit, And by committing them, we are responsible for them. I'm not trying to take away any of our responsibility. But it's also the wrath of God. God's judgment from God against an unrighteous people who've rejected Him in favor of images, in favor of false gods. And we see this first in the fact that God gave them up to impure sexual relationships. Again, Romans 1.24, Therefore, because of the foolish exchange, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Because they suppressed the truth, this reflects back on those seven steps, they suppressed the truth about God, their minds, their hearts are corrupted. Their darkened hearts are filled with lusts. That word lust means a a passionate desire specifically for what is forbidden. When we reject God, get this, when we reject God, when God is not the source of our satisfaction, when God is not where we go for our joy, when we reject the purpose for our existence to glorify God and, and enjoy Him forever, then we will become unfulfillable, unsatisfiable people. We can't get no satisfaction apart from relationship with God. And therefore, our lusts, the lust for what what is not God, overwhelms us. We seek to fulfill our desires outside of God's plan, outside of God's purposes. God gives them over to impurity. Or that word means uncleanness. The NIV translates it uh, specifically sexual impurity. This reflects the lusts of their heart. This reflects what's, what comes next in the passage. God gives them uh, to sexual impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. How do they, how do we dishonor our bodies? By using them for purposes 
that they weren't created for. Uh, Let's think about this uh, in terms of uh, the American flag. We honor the flag by using it for what it was designed for, by properly displaying it as a representation of our country, by pledging allegiance to the flag. Last night, uh, several of us were at Riverside Life Services Banquet, and at the beginning, we pledged allegiance to the flag together, led by Jeffries. I can't remember his first name. He's a political guy. And uh, the, I was, we were sitting at this table, and the table next to us was uh, one of the people sitting there was Mayor Rusty Bailey, and he's pledging, I pledge allegiance to the flag. One nation, and Rusty Bailey says, Under God! He yells it out. And then later he came up and explained, that's my new thing for this year. I'm going to emphasize the under God part of the Pledge of Allegiance. So anyway, that's, that's honoring the flag and honoring the fact that we're one nation under God. But we dishonor the flag by using it for what it's not designed for. Making it into a, a rug to wipe our feet on. A tablecloth to eat on or, or burning it in public protest. You see the point, we dishonor something when we treat it in a way that it wasn't designed to be treated, wasn't designed to be used for. And in the area of human sexuality, we dishonor our bodies by using them for what they weren't created for. God created humanity, God created us male and female, and God says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall be joined together, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, sexually. We were created to be sexually satisfied in marriage between a man and a woman. And therefore, any other sexual use of our bodies is, by definition, sexual immorality. It dishonors our bodies. It comes from the lust of our hearts. This would include, but not be limited to, uh, lust itself. Allowing your passions to be inflamed. Focusing your thoughts on impure sexual encounters or relationships. Pornography. Viewing and seeking satisfaction from sexual images. Fornication. Premarital sex. Sex between unmarried people. Adultery. Sex between people who are married to other people. These, are, these and other sexual sins are dishonoring to our bodies. And far from not hurting anyone, they destroy lives. They hurt families. They cause physical, emotional, spiritual pain and suffering. And so why do we do these things? Well, you might say because we're sinners. And that's true. But in verse 25, Paul reiterates the foolish exchange found in verse 23. It's sort of a uh, just reinforcing it. You get, get on the page, guys. This is what's happening here. Why do we dishonor our bodies? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who was blessed for it. They've lost their purpose. And so they go into this uh, area of giving up themselves. Because they, when we reject and replace God with images of created beings, we, we, He hands us over. He with, withdraws His hand and, and pushes us forward, I would say, uh, to use our bodies in ways that they were not created for. To sexual impurity that dishonors our bodies and destroys lives. Sexual impurity in all its forms is the judgment of God against humanity for exchanging God 
the Creator for His creation. And then Paul continues. In verse 26 and 27, he again says, God gave them up, this time to unnatural sexual relations. Verse 26, for this reason, again, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, because they worshipped and served the creature, not the Creator, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This parallels what Paul already said in verse 24. God gives them up to dishonor their bodies because of the passions of their lusts. They've rejected God and therefore seek satisfaction in other places. Four, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That word nature is key in understanding what Paul's saying here. It comes from the Greek uh, physis, where we get our word physics. I talked to my son, who's a physics guy. What does physics mean? The study of nature. How, how things work in nature, in the universe. And that word physis refers to the nature, human nature, that God originally created in us. And in this case, specifically, the sexual nature that God created us with. God created us male and female. He created us to be joined in a one flesh union. But we exchange the natural sexual relations between a man and a woman for what is contrary to nature, for what is unnatural. Paul continues, verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Like the women, men also exchange what is natural. Specifically, sexual relations with a woman. And instead are consumed with passion for one another. For another man. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for the error, for their error. Paul says men committing shameless. That word uh, means unseemly. Wrong acts, acts that should not be done, acts that go against God's natural created order. But notice Paul here is talking about acts. He's talking about actions. He's talking about homosexual behavior. Women with women, men with men. We see this also in in the two other places in the New Testament that homosexuality is mentioned. In 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul uses the exact same words condemning men who practice homosexuality. What I want us to see is that Paul's not addressing homosexual or same-sex attraction. He's addressing homosexual practices. Now, why is this important? Why bother? Because in the church, we've often viewed these as the same thing. We viewed someone who, for whatever reason... Genetics, environment, hormones, however you want to go, is attracted to people of the same sex. Whether they act upon this attraction or not, we view them, we view their attraction as sinful. But it's important to distinguish between attraction and behavior. Sexual attraction, whether uh, of the opposite sex or the same sex, is not a sin. Unless it turns to lust. Unless it turns to improper behavior. If I, a married man, find an unmarried woman or another man's wife attractive, that's not a sin. If I, however, dwell on and fantasize about that woman, or if I act upon that attraction, it becomes sin. It becomes sexual immorality. And the same is true for someone who experiences same-sex attraction. 
if it does not turn to lust or to behavior, then the Bible nowhere calls it sin. Now that's not to say that same-sex attraction is natural. God created us male and female to be joined in a one-flesh union. But we live in a fallen world filled with temptations, fallen desires, fallen attractions, attractions for more and bigger and better material possessions, attractions to greed, attractions to live to things that that other people have, looking at other people and saying, I want that, covetousness, attractions to be seen and thought of as better than others, attractions to pride, attractions to to eat and drink excessively, gluttony, attractions to have sexual experiences outside of marriage, sexual immorality, and the list goes on. And Scripture does not call these temptations, these fallen desires, these attractions, sin, unless they move into the area of lust or are acted upon. Therefore, we, we don't want to condemn someone who experiences this same-sex attraction, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, chooses not to act upon that temptation. Far from condemning them, we should rejoice in God's work in their lives, helping them to overcome the temptation in their lives. We need to understand what the Bible says, and we need to understand what the Bible doesn't say. We don't want to be those who so strongly resist our cultural flow that we go beyond what the Bible says. But why then, you might ask, why does Paul specifically address address homosexual sin in these verses? He he addresses sexual impurity uh, in general, but why does he focus, why does he take this time to talk about women exchanging and men exchanging? Is it, is it because, as some would say, it's, it's the worst possible sin? It's gone down, God gave him over, and that's, that's as bad as it can get. That when God gives us over, the worst thing we can do is exchange uh, uh, unnatural sexual relations. Well, in this passage, or any other passage where homosexual behavior is, is mentioned, there's no indication that it's any worse than any other of the sins listed, that, that it's listed with. So why does Paul highlight homosexual sin here in Romans 1? From the context, got to think about the context, it seems clear that it's because of how homosexual sin so closely parallels the foolish exchange found in verses 23, the verse above it, and verse 25 in the middle of it. When we exchange the natural reason for our creation, when we exchange the glory of God for images, for anything that is not God, God gives us over and we in our futile thinking and darkened heart exchange other natural things for those that are contrary to nature. And this is seen clearly in homosexual behavior. It's a clear physical example of exchanging what is natural for what is unnatural. Paul's using the unnatural exchange made in uh, made here to illustrate just how unnatural and foolish exchanging God for images is. Now the statement, my statements, what I've talked about here, saying that homosexuality is unnatural, and in fact most of what what I've said, uh, the Bible teaches about homosexual behavior, has become increasingly controversial in our culture. And that doesn't make it unique. 
The Bible is filled with things that have been and continue to be controversial in our culture. The Bible teaches that we did not evolve, but were created by God. That's controversial in our culture. The Bible teaches that that it's only through Jesus Christ that a person can be saved. There's one way, God said, to get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. That's controversial in our culture. The Bible, uh, uh, we were reminded last night at the Riverside Life Services Banquet, the Bible teaches that life begins at conception, that human life is, is valuable. This is controversial in our culture. There are many things that are controversial in our culture. That's a given. There are many things in the Bible that are controversial in our culture. That's a given. Why should a culture that's made the foolish exchange, why should those who do not believe in God or or that the Bible is the Word of God believe anything the Bible says? That's not to say we shouldn't challenge our culture with these issues. We should. But it is to say we shouldn't expect our culture to believe the same things we do about God and about His Word. However, with regards to homosexuality, the things I have just said the Bible teaches are becoming increasingly controversial, not just in our culture, but in our church. According to a, a 2014... That's like three years ago already. 2014 Pew Research Center report, 54% of Americans who identify themselves as Christians now say that homosexuality should be accepted. This is up from 44% in 2007. In seven years, 10% up. The The report also says among Christians, this trend is driven partly by young church members who are generally more accepting of homosexuality than their elder counterparts. Now, again, there are those who call themselves Christians and yet do not believe the Bible is the Word of God. For them, it's it's simply a matter of rejecting verses like we've just read, Romans 1, 26 and 27, saying that these are the words of, of Paul or some other bigoted man. These are not the words of God. But there are people... Maybe even some here this morning who would say that they believe the Bible is God's word and yet would still condone certain homosexual practices. These, I believe, have too quickly gone with the cultural flow and read changes into the Bible. And and so I'd like to just take a minute and address uh, what I'm calling three main current cultural interpretations of Romans 1, 26-27. I'm calling it that, but I didn't make these up. I've taken most of, of what follows here in this section from a uh, thing Tom gave me, an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship paper titled A Theological Summary of Human Sexuality. It's a, it's a, it's a large paper, but I'm, I'm just taking this section out, of, of ways that uh, people in the church are interpreting Romans 1, 26 and 27. First, they say Paul is talking about heterosexuals. They say Paul is not condemning homosexual acts. He's not condemning unnatural. He's condemning unnatural acts. That is that those who have natural a natural attraction to the opposite sex, heterosexuals, who choose to partake in homosexual acts, that's who he's condemning. But not homosexuals who are naturally attracted to people of the same sex. However, 
Paul, I think, makes it clear that the behavior he's talking about is coming from a place. And that place is the passions, the desires of the heart. It's clear that these people have this attraction. They're following their desires. What they would say, at least, is natural to them. Plus, the phrase uh, in verse uh, 24, I think it is, contrary to nature, refers to uh, a rebellion against God's natural created order, not how any particular person feels their nature is. Okay, so that's the first. Paul's talking about heterosexuals. Second interpretation is that Paul is talking about uh, minors, children. They say Paul is not condemning sexual relations among adults of the same sex, but uh, he's condemning relationships between uh, an adult with a child of the same sex. This was common in Paul's day among elite men Greek and Roman world, in the Greek and Roman world. Men would have a wife and a boy to fulfill their sexual desires. However, in the passage, there's no hint of adult sex with children. Rather, it's men with men, specifically using those words. Women with women. There are, in fact, different Greek words you could use if you were talking about minors. Also, the mention of sex between women makes it highly unlikely since this was not a a common practice between ancient pagan women and girls. And the final interpretation is that Paul is talking about prostitution. The the sexual practices here uh, have to do with temple prostitution, which did exist in Paul's day. You could go to pagan temples and... Uh, be with a prostitute of the opposite or same sex. However, the language in this passage actually makes no reference to that at all, to temple prostitution. It simply speaks of sexual relations between adults of the same sex. Therefore, it seems clear that these objections do not come from a clear understanding of God's Word. Instead, they come from a desire to rationalize and to embrace views that are part of the current culture. But we need to acknowledge That for some Christians, some well-meaning Christians, I believe, these views come from a desire to love and show compassion to homosexuals who've traditionally been looked down upon, shunned, persecuted by the church. Now, that doesn't mean that their views are correct. The Bible must rule over even our good intentions. But this is where I believe the biblical balance we need comes into play. Knowing the truth of Scripture knowing that sexual impurity, including homosexual behavior, is a sin, is outside of God's plan, is wrong. Knowing that it is a a revelation of God's wrath on a fallen world. We must still ask the question, how do we respond to those who struggle with, or who are engaged in sexual immorality in our world? How do we respond in a biblically balanced way? How do we respond with conviction and compassion? Now understand that this is much more complex than we have have time for today. I just want to highlight four things. Four things I believe we should consider as we respond. First, respond with the gospel. Respond with the gospel. Do you remember the purpose of this entire section? I've said this maybe every time. This is Sermon 9 in Romans. I think I've, most every time I've said, well, that's not true. Since we got to verse 18, I've said it. The purpose of Romans 1.18 to, 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 to Romans 3.20 is 
show our need, to demonstrate the need for the gospel, to demonstrate humanity's need for the gospel. Paul's overarching purpose here is not the condemnation of homosexuality, homosexual practices, or any sin. His purpose is to show that homosexuals and every sinner needs the gospel, needs Jesus Christ. So our response should be one of first, sharing the gospel, sharing Christ with those who are in need, including those struggling with sexual immorality. Because it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. It's not through our lectures. It's not through our anything. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners find both salvation and deliverance from their sin. Jesus Christ alone can restore and redeem. It's through the gospel that we become new creatures in Christ, that we're transformed by Christ. So first, respond with the gospel. Second, respond for God's glory. According to the Bible, is sexual impurity, including homosexual behavior, a sin? Yes. But it's not the main, it's not the root sin. I hope that's come across clearly both last week and this. But let me be clear. Humanity, our greatest sin at the root of all sin, whether we're heterosexual or homosexual, is the foolish exchange of the glory of God for images. The exchange of the truth of God for a lie. This is the heart of every other sin that's ever been committed. When we sin, whether we're lusting in our mind, viewing pornography, having premarital sex, homosexual sex, or any other sin, for that matter, we're exchanging the glory of God. We exchange what God wants us to do, what brings Him glory, what honors God, for what we want to do, for what we in our foolishness think will bring us pleasure and satisfaction. When we sin, we're saying, uh, we're proving that we value something else more than we value God and His glory. And therefore, this is where we should focus our energies in our lives and as we seek to help those who struggle in any area of sin in their life. Our focus should first and foremost be not on the, the specific sin that we engage in, that they engage in, although that needs to be addressed, not ignored. Our first focus should, however, be on who we, who we and who they are seeking to honor and glorify. Who we, who they, are worshiping. Who or where we are seeking to find our satisfaction. For it's only when God takes His rightful place in our lives, at the, at the, in the center, at the, at the top, it's only when we seek to reverse that foolish exchange. We talked about that last week. Making the wise exchange. Giving everything up for, that we might gain Christ. It's only then when we seek our ultimate satisfaction from God not from the sinful pleasures of this world. Only then can we fight the sin that so easily besets us. So second, respond by focusing on the root cause of all sin. Our rejection of God and His glory in favor of what we want to do. Our own ideas about who God is. And third, respond in humility. I think Tom touched on this well uh, leading us into the service. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember where we came from. We need to remember what God saved us from. 
we cannot, uh, pardon the cliche, sit on our high horse looking down on anyone. We need to, in humility, understand what Paul says to the church in Corinth. After listing uh, basically sinful people, uh, he's got a list here. And he's not making any distinction which one is worse than the other. He's such as sexual, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revelers, swindlers. He's got this list. And in 1 Corinthians 6.11 he says, And such were some of you. But you, uh, praise the Lord, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, of our God. I would like us to be a church that gets who we were before Christ and who we are in Christ. A church that recognizes that we are all justified sinners saved by the grace of God. That we all have have differing issues, attractions, temptations that incline every one of us to do sinful things. And therefore, we in humility as a church should seek to love and come alongside one another, including those who struggle with sexual sin. And together in humility, we should fight as we seek to walk in purity before the Lord. So, humility. Respond in humility. And finally, respond in, in repentance. That's what I had first. I had repentance. So you only got in your notes. If you're doing the notes, there's only one line. But I added, and love. Respond in repentance and love. Now we've said a lot about uh, sexual immorality, including homosexual behavior. We've pointed out it's sin. But I believe that as a church and as individuals, we need, we need to examine how we've sinned in our treatment of homosexuals specifically. How we've not taken a position of humility. Believing that, yes, we are sinners. I mean, you know, if you, you know you're a sinner, you're saved by grace, but their sin is much worse than ours. This leads us to justifying our attitudes. Leads us to hate. Leads us to indifference. It leads us to not caring, to not loving, or, or ignoring this this specific group of people. I don't want anything to do with that group of people. And I would say, I would call us to repentance. To repent of any attitudes of superiority we might have. To repent of our indifference. To repent of our belief that homosexuals are somehow unworthy of our love or God's love. When asked uh, what was the greatest commandment, Jesus responded first, Love God with everything you've got. I, 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 let, me, let me paraphrase that. Don't make that foolish exchange. Don't exchange God for anything else. Love God with everything you've got. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus didn't disqualify anyone. He didn't, didn't say, accept these people. These aren't your neighbors. Don't have to love them. In fact, Jesus said, love your enemy. So, I mean, it's everybody. Jesus doesn't disqualify anyone from receiving our love. He commands us to love our neighbors. We need to ask God uh, to give us His supernatural... We can't do this on our own. This is crazy. I can't do it. We need to ask God to give us His supernatural love for our homosexual neighbors. And if you dare, ask God to give you an opportunity to demonstrate His supernatural love to a homosexual neighbor in your life.
person in your life. As I say that, I have a picture of some people that I, I know that I haven't been that, that great to. Not, not in a bad way, I just haven't engaged. More of the ignoring that brought conviction to my heart as I, as I worked through this sermon. Again, that doesn't, mean reject, that doesn't mean that we are rejecting our biblical convictions and acting and accepting their behavior, but it does mean accepting them as people who you're called to love. Showing them love and compassion. In general, the church uh, throughout history, as Tom pointed out, has not demonstrated the love of Christ to those who struggle specifically with homosexual sin. Let us not continue in that unrighteous tradition. Instead, let us regard, let us respond with, with biblical convictions and biblical compassion. Let us respond with the gospel. Let us respond for God's glory. Let us respond in humility and repentance and in love. Would you, would you pray with me to that end? Father God, I pray for us. Lord, this is a sermon to your church. This is a message in your word to us, Lord. And I pray that we would respond. I pray you would transform our hearts. Lord, that we would see in ourselves all that you have delivered us from. All that you have allowed us to overcome because of your spirit within us. And that you would give us compassion for those who struggle. You would give us compassion for those who even, uh, who even celebrate their own sinfulness, Father. Lord, that you would use us for your glory. That you would give us opportunities to share your gospel. That you would give us opportunities to show humility, love, repentance where needed, Father. Lord, be with us and, and use us in our, in our culture. Help us to engage our culture in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to the end of our service today, I want to uh, pray, and I want to exhort us around two things. As I listen to Cliff, um, his comments at the beginning of the service about the authority of Scripture strike me um, as being very important. In the midst of uh, this topic's different than the other topics that Cliff mentions that are controversial, things about evolution, um, It's because this topic strikes at the very core of humanity. Our sexuality is not a topic out there. It's a topic that's right inside of us. We live it every moment of the day, and we feel it, and we experience it. And so it's very personal, and it's very uh, very deep because it's intrinsic to who we are. And and as we think about um, that reality, and as we think about relationships, and we think about conceptions of justice, we think about conceptions of uh, what the plausibility of a life living the sexual ethic that Cliff's talked about would really look like, that is like a power of a wave that wants to wash over the Scripture, and it wants to win the day. And those are very real. When you sit down and you talk with a friend who's trying to to live out what feels very much about the same-sex attraction and figure out what to do with that, uh, it becomes very difficult for the Scripture uh, in the midst of all those relationships for the, the Scripture to, to be the anchor out of which, out of which we confess of sexual ethic. And, and so um, it's very easy for those things to just wash over the Scripture. And I just want to exhort us to be scholars of the Word, that it's really the, the anchor for our convictions about morality and ethics are always anchored in what's true, And this is an invitation to us 
to anchor ourselves more deeply, more seriously in what the Scripture actually says. For some of us, that means we need to study and we need to engage the Scripture and we need to understand what it says because our ethic here in this area is only anchored as Christians in how we understand the authority of Scripture and what it really says. And so I just appreciate Cliff's reference at the beginning about the, the, the significance of the Scripture and our wrestling with it around this area. And then the other thing that I, I'm feeling is um, just his word at the end about repentance. And so um, it is true that as Christians, um, we need to repent as we think about how as the Christian church is engaged, uh, those that have same-sex attraction in the gay community. And so I'm going to pray as we end, and I'm going to pray uh, and seek, I'm going to ask God's forgiveness on behalf of us as a church. We are Christians, and when a gay person sees us as a Christian, it says Christian right here, and all of the things that they've experienced as a gay person in relationship to Christians and the church that have been hurtful are imposed right on us, and we represent the church to them. And the opportunity we have is to represent the church, as Cliff exhorted us, in a way that uh, changes their experience. For me, one of the best things that I've thought about that we can do in engaging people um, that are gay in terms of being Christians is to simply ask the question, uh, tell me, help me understand what it's like in your world and what has it been like in your relationship with Christians. That question is a question of humility and of repentance. And so I encourage us to use that question and to carry that with us. Would you pray with me as we come to the end of our service today? Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for Cliff's word. We thank you for your scripture. God, we, we want to be good students of your word. We want to engage it. We want it to be the foundation of how we understand uh, how we live life and in this area. So would you be our tutor and guide, the one who leads us into truth. And God, we um, confess um, as a Christian church and as representers of Christ's church that we have failed to treat uh, others, especially in this area of around uh, same-sex attraction and what the Scripture says about human sexuality with dignity and with respect as people made in the image of God. And so we confess that and ask your forgiveness and seek God for you to lead us as people who can love well with conviction and with compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.